Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, good morning once again, and welcome to those who are joining us online as well. As Liv said earlier, we're launching into a new message series called Lasting Words. It actually picks up where we left off in the fall when we looked at John 14, 15, and part of 16 in a message series called Jesus Continued. Uh, This one picks up in John chapter 16, verse 16, and we're calling it Lasting Words. Really highly encourage you to bring your Bibles along, uh, where you can underline, highlight, whatever it is. If you didn't bring one and would like to uh, turn the Bible, or use the Bible and the chair in front of you. The page number is 1678, and so you may want to do that. I don't know about how it looks in your home, but my guess is that probably whether it's your kids, whether it's your spouse, uh, there's some level where you look at somebody and they think, you think, ah, there's some selective listening going on there. Ever kind of think that? Uh, maybe you send them off and, or call them at work. Hey, on your way home, can you pick up like a head of lettuce, some fruit, and maybe some cookies and whatever? And they get home and they got the cookies, but that's it. Like Kind of like what resonates with them, they get, but other stuff drops off the radar screen. Maybe you give your kids some instructions and say, hey, can you do X, Y, and Z? And the fun stuff gets done and the other stuff doesn't. And you just say, ah, there's some like selective listening going on there. Another reason that sometimes we don't kind of absorb all that is told to us is just the sheer massive amount of information that we deal with in our day. Uh, Scientists have measured the amount of data that enters our brain and found that an average person living today processes as much as 74 gigabytes of information a day through TV, computers, cell phones, tablets, billboards, and other gadgets. Uh, That's as much as watching roughly 16 movies every single day. That's the amount of information that comes our year. Bad news is every year, it's about 5% more than the previous year. So get ready for that. Here's the deal. About 500 years ago, scientists estimate 74 gigabytes of information was roughly the amount and a highly educated person would process in a whole lifetime. In other words, you're generally confronted in one day through all of the avenues of communication with as much input and information as a person 500 years ago who was well-educated would process over the course of a lifetime. That's pretty significant. But get this. Here we are opening our Bibles to John chapter 16. And our goal is actually to listen well to the words of Jesus spoken 2,000 years ago. Those are lasting words. A massive amount of the information that you process on any given day is gone by the next day. 
It's forgotten. It's deleted from your memory. It's no longer relevant. But here we are opening our Bibles to the gospel of John and listening to the words of Jesus that are lasting words that are still impactful, relevant to our day 2,000 years later. Not only that, in a few weeks, we're actually going to be looking at a prayer that Jesus prays. And he prays it literally for followers of Jesus in our day. He prays for his disciples that are gathered around him. And then he kind of makes a bridge and he says, I also pray for those in the future who will believe in me. In other words, he prays for you and I removed generations from when he spoketh. Those, friends, are lasting words. That's lasting words. Just to get a little bit of context to this, in John chapter 14, we saw that Jesus talked about the many rooms that he's providing in his father's house. His statement is that I long for the day when I will be fully present with you and you fully present with me. He talks about the fact that the disciples can expect to be rejected just as they're rejecting Jesus. In John chapter 15, he talks about the vine and the branches. And he says, I'm the source of life. I'm the one that you need to be rooted and grounded in. I'm the vine who gives life. He talks about the fact that he's going to ascend, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will continue the presence of Jesus with us. That is truth who he is will continue to be present in our lives through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And then we come to John chapter 16, verse 16, that we're going to get into next. And some of the reasons that we forget is because we just kind of like hear things as information. So what I want you to do is actually use some of your imagination. Jesus has just had the last supper in the upper room. He's washed his disciples' feet. They've had the supper together. Judas has walked out as Jesus had said, one of you is going to betray me, and that points to Judas. Jesus and the rest of the disciples leave the room. They're walking, and it's dark. They're going down into this valley called the Kidron Valley. But go back up out of that valley into the area of olive groves called the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's night, it's quiet. You can hear the, just the soft pat of feet as Jesus and his disciples move along. There's a sense of heaviness in the air as well. Because Jesus had said some things that the disciples just don't know how to process. They know that something is going to happen. And just for the bigger context, something that we, excuse me, we know that disciples didn't know is that literally in just a few hours, Jesus would be crucified. Again, it's Thursday evening in our imaginations. We're walking down into the Kidron Valley. Darkness is spreading over. That night, Jesus would stand before Pilate. He would be condemned. He would be flogged. Jesus would say to Peter before the rooster crows, and the rooster was going to crow just before sunrise. And by nine o'clock Friday morning, Jesus would be hanging on a cross. By 12 o'clock noon, darkness would 
cover the sky. That darkness would last until three o'clock. And at three o'clock, Friday afternoon, Jesus would utter, utter, utter the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. Disciples didn't know all of those details were coming. That's what we know. All they know is they're walking with Jesus from the upper room down into the Kidron Valley. They're having conversation as they go. Jesus is talking to them. He's speaking to them. He's explaining things. And that brings us exactly to where we are this morning. And the verses we look at this morning are kind of basic, but but here's the deal. Jesus is making clear that in our journey with him, there's questions and there's crisis, and that can lead to clarity. There's also grief and hardship, and that can lead to joy. Questions and crisis can actually lead to greater clarity, and grief and hardship can actually lead to greater joy. First, questions and clarity. Questions and clarity. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus went on to say, by the way, just when John says that, it's sort of interesting that he he puts that little phrase there that Jesus went on to say. So in my mind, in my imagination, I'm guessing there was sort of a little bit of a, a break in the conversation. Maybe it got quiet for a few moments. Maybe just there was a moments of silence as they walked along, as they contemplated. What in the world is Jesus saying? And so Jesus like breaks the silence as they walk along. Again, it's nighttime. It's it's dark and there's little noise other than their shuffling of the disciples along this path. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. Then after a little while, you will see me. Now in a moment, we're going to look at disciples' confusion about that statement, uh, but, but we know with clarity what Jesus was meaning by that. When Jesus says, in a little while, you will see no, me no more, he's talking about his death. He's saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. You're literally not going to see me anymore because I'm going to be gone from your presence. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. But then he also says, and then after a little while, you will see me. Jesus is saying, you'll see me again. I'm going to be risen from the dead. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And so you will see me again. Disciples aren't certain about that. They don't know what he's talking about. Here's what it says. At this, some of his disciples said to one another. So Jesus says that statement. You can kind of like hear the disciples following along, conversing among themselves, kind of whispering among themselves because they're not quite sure what they make of it. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Now, one thing I I love about the scripture is simply this. I love it that the Bible is painfully honest. It's one thing that draws me to it. It's one of the reasons why it has credibility that we can trust that it's an actual record of what's happening. Why? Because the Bible doesn't paint people who follow after Jesus or who believe in God with nice, beautiful portraits of wonderfulness. 
We're let in to their confusion. We're let in to their questions. In fact, from cover to cover in the Bible, those who express faith in God, those who are following after him, often they struggle, often they doubt. They're always falling. They're always tripping. They're always getting tripped up by failures. Friends, I love that about the scripture. It's not plasticky. It's not artificial. It's not made beautiful. Instead, it comes across with this sense of authenticity, that these are real people with real struggles, with real questions, with real failures, with real doubts. Jesus is never propped up by these people who surround him who just are yes people and constantly affirming and they get everything and they do exactly, no, it's exact opposite. It's always messy. And I love that. And here's the deal. These are Jesus's disciples and it's messy for them. They can't quite get some stuff. Here's what I want you to understand. It's interesting that Jesus even let them live in the mess. Maybe you heard of like helicopter parenting or lawnmower parenting or bulldozer parenting. What's that kind of parenting? Uh, Lawnmower parenting is when you kind of like go ahead of your kid. And if there's the slightest obstacle, you make sure it's removed before they get there. You want life to be as easy and smooth and placid as possible. And so if you're a bulldozer parent or a lawnmower parent, you make sure that any small obstacle any kind of conflict your child has, any kind of difficulty, they, you just like get out of their path because you want it to be as smooth and easy as possible. Listen, friends, God is not a lawnmower God. He's not a helicopter God. He's not a bulldozer God. He allows people who follow and trust in him to wrestle he says sometimes, anybody, any of you read some parts of scripture and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Like, yeah, like I've graduated from seminary and studied the Bible for a lot. And sometimes like, what? Like, what, where is that coming from? What does he say? And how does that apply to us? So we try to resource you as much as we possibly can. But here's the deal, friends. What I love about this is that Jesus isn't afraid of their questions. He's like, he doesn't say, oh no, they're confused. Like he works it through with them. He speaks with them. You know, sometimes maybe some of you were in an environment where, man, if you asked the question, somebody would pull the fire alarm. Like, oh my gosh, like somebody's asking a question. They're going to doubt. They're going to, like, they're, they're wobbly. Or, Or maybe you asked a question and it was made clear to you in no uncertain terms that if you're going to believe in God, don't dare ask a question. Don't dare express confusion. Don't dare articulate your doubt. But you read scripture, and that's sort of a normal part of the journey. Now, we got to be careful because sometimes our questions are more cynical than they are sincere. And so we can ask questions with biting cynicism rather than sincerity to really learn. But what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't slap them on their hands for asking questions, but instead their questions are actually an avenue for them to grow deeper in the truth. And maybe your questions are too. Friends, too many times 
I think we take our questions and we bury them or we leave them behind and we forget about them rather than pursue your questions, move more deeply into truth, take responsibility to figure out what kind of questions you have and what the answers might be. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation, a text conversation actually with someone. They were just saying over text that, you know, I don't really... Sometimes I just don't feel God's real. Just not even sure what to believe. I don't know that he hears. I don't know that he's present. And knowing something about the situation, I responded back and I said, you know, knowing what you've been through, I don't see how you can't have questions. Knowing the difficulty of your path, I think it would be extremely artificial for you to say that you don't have questions. Given what you've gone through, I think questions are the only reasonable thing. Friends, what would it look like rather than quick, kind of maybe quickly giving an answer or brushing question aside? Let's just be an environment where people ask questions and we're good with that. We love the dialogue. But here's what I want you to understand too. Let's, let's move deeply into our questions. Let's learn. Let's grow. Take responsibility to move more deeply. And notice the disciples as they travel, they're asking these questions among themselves. One of the things that's honestly highly valuable is just having others to bounce questions off of. To be in a group, maybe it's a home group, life group, whatever it is, and simply say, hey, here's some of the questions I have about this text. Here's some questions I have about kind of my life and how God relates to it. Like, dive into that. One of the things that concerns me, quite honestly, is that in, in our world, as we saw, there's tons of information, friends. When you think of technology, I mean, technology has done nothing but this over the last number of years. It's grown massively. Take a very small incidental detail. Remember my mom growing up had a cookbook. It's kind of all the recipes that she had. You know, you had the cookbook. I mean, now, man, you go online, like just even recipes. There's, there's a million recipes. Think about the technology on your car. Technology on your car is vastly, vastly improved. Vastly taken steps forward. But what concerns me? is sometimes I feel like our biblical knowledge has stopped about here. In other words, we live in a graduate world informationally. We live in a graduate world in terms of challenges, but we still live with kind of a kindergarten faith and a kindergarten knowledge of the gospel. And friends, that will not hold up. Does your tech savvy, does your tech savvy outpace your gospel rootedness? Does your social media engagement outpace your gospel engagement? Does your political opinions outweigh gospel truth? Friends, listen, in every area in our world, it's like this, friends, science, all that stuff. And make no mistake, the gospel can keep up. The gospel can handle the weight of all of this. But many times, our knowledge of the gospel, our knowledge of God's truth is kind of dwarfed 
by everything else. Don't let your information consumption dwarf your biblical faith grounding. Don't let your information consumption dwarf your biblical faith grounding. You're going to have questions, but you know what? Your questions are not just going to be questions. Answers are not going to fall from the sky. Take personal responsibility to sharpen your relationship with God, to engage with God's truth, to have a graduate level and continuing education experience of growing more deeply in your faith. Friends, that's so incredibly important. It's why one of the reasons why we put the reading plan together for the Gospel of John. It's why we have message notes, little booklets. You can take some notes and look at them during the week because we want to see this. We believe the gospel can handle all this, but man, friends, this has got to grow. We can't be more conversant in the areas of like entertainment and pleasure than we are in scripture. It's got to hold the weight. We've got to deepen and questions are actually an opportunity to go deeper. That's questions and clarity. Secondly, is grief and joy. Grief and joy. Verse 20 says this, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Uh, That's how Jesus answers their question. Notice he still really doesn't even answer it that directly. He kind of answers it indirectly. And the way that he answers it is this. Earlier, he said, uh, in a little while, you will see me no more. That correlates to weeping and mourning. He also said, then after a little while, you will see me. That correlates to grief turned into joy. So he doesn't really even answer their question overly directly. But when he does, he uses that sense of, you will see me no more. He's answering that question of what he means. Because in a little while, they're going to experience grief. They're going to experience sorrow as he's crucified. He answers their question about, in a little while you will see me, by their experience that's coming when they will have joy. And so he answers their question in sort of a roundabout way to deepen them and strengthen them. Just one little thing. Notice he says, you will weep while the world rejoices. What does he mean by that? Why would the world rejoice? Well, it's it's pretty much because of this. Jesus came on the scene, and when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, that sort of means that I'm not the truth personally. When Jesus says, he's the truth, and he's God come to us, that pretty much takes off the table that I'm my own solution to my own problems. When Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm going to be crucified to cover the curse of sin, that pretty much means I need my own curse of sin to be covered, and I'm incapable of covering it myself. When Jesus says, I am the way to the Father, that pretty much means I'm going to fall short of making my own way. And friends, in the face of pride and arrogance, you're going to have joy 
when somebody like that gets off the scene, when they're finally gotten rid of. Jesus came saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Ooh, like I'd kind of remove, like to remove that voice from the scene. Blessed are those who weep and mourn for they shall be comforted. Really? Like, come on, blessed are those who pursue pleasure for they're going to have happiness. Like, I'd like to remove that voice from the scene. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for the sake of Christ. Ooh, like, let's get that voice from the scene. Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, lose your life for my sake. And the world rejoices because that's not a welcome voice. And so that's what Jesus is driving at. Then he says this, to sort of take apart the grief being turned into joy. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Jesus is saying the grief that you're going to go through will actually lead you to the place of joy. You know, sometimes I think about it like this. If we have the cross here and maybe the empty tomb here, sometimes I think of the kind of a three-day period between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection almost as like a microwaved, condensed, tightly put-together scenario of all of our lives as followers of Jesus. At the cross... There's grief, there's sadness, there's hardship. It feels like defeat. Friday, God seems, or Saturday, I'm sorry, God seems absent. Sunday comes and Jesus is raised from the dead. Now here's the deal, friends. You and I live in the reality that Jesus is raised from the dead. But the real implications of that, we're still waiting for. One day, Jesus will come again. One day, there'll be a new creation. One day, grief and sorrow and tears will totally be taken away, and there will only be pure joy. That's a, and, and so we live life in that sense, but the cross and the resurrection are sort of this microwaved, condensed form of reality, which simply means this. Whatever grief whatever sadness that you're experiencing right now. And friends, don't be artificial. Remember we said, like one of the cool things about scripture is it's just, it's just blatantly honest. It's blatantly real. Whatever grief, whatever hardship, whatever sorrow that you have, the joy of Jesus' life, the hope, the confidence, the assurance of his victory can be yours now, but eventually 
it will be fully, 100%, absolutely fulfilled. Because the cross and the resurrection is a microcosm of history at large. There's grief, there's loss, there's sadness, there's fear. But there's hope, there's confidence, there's assurance, there's certainty of victory. In the cross and resurrection, it's condensed. But friends, the story is absolutely certain. And notice this. Jesus uses the analogy of a mother giving birth. Notice something. The pain that a mom goes through is not an interruption of the joy. It's actually a path toward it. I know that's hard to grasp, but here's what that means. That means your pain, your hardship, what you're struggling with is not this unfortunate interruption of an idealized life that you would rather have. It's not sort of something that got past the fingers and hands of God. It's not something that's going to somehow permanently derail God's plan for your life, but, but somehow... Your grief, your pain, your sorrow, your sadness, somehow in the grand scheme of how God's work is actually a path toward joy. The cross was not an interruption. The cross was actually the gateway to the resurrection. The cross was not an interruption. The cross was actually a gateway to the victory. It's actually through the cross that the joy and victory came. And friends, I want you to know, it's actually through your pain. It's actually through your sorrow. It's actually through your grief that joy and victory comes. Questions are a pathway to clarity. Questions are a pathway to growth and depth. Grief is a pathway to joy. I'm going to ask our team to come out and we're going to sing a final song. Before we do that, or as they come up, let me just read another verse or two of Scripture. This one from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Did you get that? Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Jesus says to his disciples, so with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Let's stand and sing this song, and it's going to remind us 
that we serve and worship a God who turns graves into gardens, a God who takes the wasteland and creates the oasis, a God who takes the desert and creates the place of fertileness. Friends, grief, hardship are real. But the fact of the matter is there's a 100% certainty that through Christ, there will be absolute 100% victory and life. Let's sing the song as an affirmation of that, as an affirmation of our faith and trust that that's real. Turn shame into glory. You're the only 
May you, may you use our questions and our doubts to draw us deeper into you. Help us to be sincere. Help us to walk with others and their fears, their doubts, their questions. And God, thank you that grief and sorrow and pain is not an interruption to the journey, but in somehow leads to greater victory and joy. We look forward to the day when the story will be complete. When all that is uncertain and grief and tears will be wiped away. But until then, we know that you are alive, that you are raised from the dead, and so may nothing take away our joy. We ask that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who greets that. Amen. Prayer team will be down here to the, uh, my left, your right. God bless. Have a wonderful day.